of two. Les Salzman has spent over 30 years in the equine and media industries. Formerly a handicapper known as Whispering Pete and successful trainer, Les knows horses and horse racing intimately. With a lifetime of knowledge on the inside scoop, Les breaks down the who, what, and when of this dynamically evolving and radically changing industry that's been electrifying fans for generations. And now, from the Equisport Network Studios in Wellington, Florida, it's Les Salzman. Hey, thanks, Doug, and uh, what an introduction that was to start the show. Uh, got got me all excited, and uh, this afternoon we've got a very special guest uh, on the line with us right now, Maggie Moss. Maggie, welcome to the show. Good afternoon or good morning, Les. Hey, thanks thanks for making time for us. I know you're you're always busy, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Now you're I, in yeah, Iowa I, today. I am in. I am indeed. Now, you were born in Des Moines or in the Des Moines area? or uh, Left my family from Chicago, and I, however, was born, lived in Des Moines my whole life. I've uh, moved to Malibu. I've moved to Warrington, Virginia. I've moved to Palm Beach. I've moved, and I always come home. <laughs> I always come home. So you know, I, I, I grew I, up just outside Atlantic City, New Jersey. And uh, there used to be a saying that you had sand in your shoes and you would always come home because you had sand in your shoes. Like, what is it in Iowa that brings you back? I, you know, I, I mentioned to you that I lived down, um, my mom lived in Palm Beach, close to you. I certainly showed horses in Wellington. I uh, spent every summer of my life in Warrington, Virginia with Bucky Reynolds. May he rest in peace. And I always come home because it's friendly. It's easy, it's safe, it's just peaceful, and it's just a way of life that's hard to give up. It's it's the typical Midwest. Everybody uh, says hello, everyone smiles, everybody um, helps, and, you know, it takes 10 minutes to get to the airport and five minutes to get downtown, and you can still live on an acreage. So I just love it here. I really do. And I know you've been passionate about the, the Midwest you know, from what I, I've read about you, uh, you've been involved with not only racing, but also on the legal end as a prosecutor. I, you know, I had a choice of being a little fish in a big sea or a big fish in a little sea. I went to the University of Kentucky. I started out as a public defender. Then I was a prosecutor. Then I did some big time trial work and had my own practice here for a while. And was able to accomplish, you know, a lot of things that are very passionate to me, and that involved um, animals, puppy mills, horse slaughter, battered woman. I mean, I'm kind of a bleeding heart when it comes to animals or people that are less fortunate. And I, to this day, 
that's just kind of where my heart lies. And I try and do things differently throughout the country now that deal with horses. And um, I just, that's, that's the one thing that keeps me ticking is helping less fortunate people and more importantly, animals. Before we start talking about horses, I'd like to go back to the people side of it, because in doing the research for the show, I was impressed with the people that you've helped and the groups of people that you've rolled up your sleeves for. And and probably a lot of that was pro bono. And well, I, I, there's, there's um, I don't know if helping... A uh, battered woman, or helping. I, I did less the first postpartum cases. One of that had postpartum. Uh, it seems like the things I've done are before they become media driven. So most things, if the media drives it, you know, you, if you make the media drive thing like postpartum depression, and people that say, you know, woman that killed their babies or harmed their babies and don't understand postpartum. I was actually on the Oprah Winfrey show during 9-11 when we first started talking about women, and I had one of the first women in Iowa that actually killed and burned her baby, and nobody understood that other than not understanding postpartum, and that was kind of uh, not the end of my legal career, but you can imagine sitting in the Oprah Winfrey studio during 9-11. Uh, looking at some very uh, beautiful women from California and otherwise that had that disease. So um, I've I've lived way too many lives less, way too many lives helping uh, people that, um, primarily women, that, you know, was responsible for changing the law on a woman that was married to a Vietnam vet and he tried to kill her and um, he was locked up, and they let him go get alcohol treatment, and she went over to feed her dogs, and he was waiting for her and killed her, and that got the law changed in Iowa about releasing people uh, that are in mental lockup. So anytime you can get the law changed um, to help other people, that's that's what you give back to society, I think. The, the underlying tone, though, that I'm hearing is a huge compassion. And where did that come from? I wish I knew less. I wish I, I, I wish, um, I don't know where, how we're raised in this society as we both see, you know, abhorrent abuses against people and animals. And you think about the mentality that creates that type of horror versus those that have compassion. I guess I was pretty lucky to grow up in a town and, I seemingly have always done better with animals than people, meaning I, you know, the bunny rabbits at Easter, and um, my dad, as you know, started me riding when I was eight years old, and so I grew, instead of dealing with drugs or bullying or alcohol, I, I just wanted to be around the horses and ride, and I'm very grateful because the horses taught me that compassion, the horses taught me that competitiveness, and the horses probably taught me more about things than being your average kid that, that you know, just went to school and dealt with uh, the today's society problem. So I think the animals taught me that less. You know, oftentimes people say to me, well, horses are so expensive for little girls to ride and little boys to ride. And I often say, that's probably the cheapest money you're ever going to spend. 
to make sure your kid's okay. Uh, because, well, because I, they do. I, nothing, nothing could be further than the truth, and what I'm the most grateful for, um, for all parents out there, is my father bought me nice show horses, but he insisted I go through Pony Club, and when I was down at Wellington riding and showing back in the days, I do remember the limousines and the kids stepping on the horses, and he made me learn about the horses. I had to take care of my horses, and I didn't get any of those uh, perks. <laughs> I'm really grateful that he taught me to learn about the horses before I got to ride competitively. I guess that would be the greatest gift. It's helped me every day. You know, I, I think that that's so true, and we see that more and more these days, you know, where these kids, you know, get dropped off and they jump on and they jump off, and, you know, the, the responsibility of riding a horse is done with. And you wonder where, how big that hole is that's not being filled by having that relationship with the horse. I, I think it's huge, and I've obviously read and keep up with the hunter-jumper world and the editorials and what everybody's writing, but I cannot put a price on going to Pony Club and all the hard hours that I had to deal with with the animals before I got to go to the horse shows. And he also taught me, you know, the value of a dollar. I can still remember when, you know, people like Paul Newman would come out and look at some of our show horses with his daughter, Clea, and I never wanted to sell anything because I fell in love, and he taught me, <laughs> you know, what it cost. I, every Friday last, I had to go to his office, and he'd show me how many jukeboxes he had to sell to a few my hunter jumper days. So to this day, that carries over to appreciating the value of a dollar. And I, I think that's pretty important for everybody out there. And probably that work ethic of taking care of the horse yourself had a lot to do with your success in law school and going forward in the legal profession because you had that work ethic. Well, I, I think I said when we were briefly chatting the other day, I've never considered myself brilliant or smart or um, of any great skills, but I did learn how to outwork people. I learned that you could simply have a work ethic where perhaps you could outwork money. And I, I believe in that uh, really importantly, even today in the racehorse world. I, it's easy to spend money. It's much harder to put all the hours in, and that worked with the law. Look at last, I hate to lose. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't like to lose. Okay. <laughs> I don't like that. I take that personally, and if things aren't going well and I'm not winning at something, then I'm just going to work harder. Not spend money, but work harder. And that's, that's like it. I've made money in the racehorse business for 17 years, and people don't believe you can make money in this business. And it's not just about making money, but I can make money and take care of my horses. That is a home run. No, and you know I've watched watched your results for since what about two year two thousand two thousand one you got into the business seriously about about that time yeah that's correct yeah. and you know and then was it five or six years later you're the leading owner in the country yeah that was nothing short of a miracle <laughs> I still well, don't know how that happened <laughs> no, no, I, I don't know about that you see. I believe in miracles like at the hospital. I don't believe in miracles at the barn. I think at the barn, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of understanding the business and and getting a, a business plan. 
And that's what Last, I think. I, I did a video with HRTV that on January 1st, 2008 or 2007, I sat in a very empty house and cried hysterically, realizing I had become the only woman that had the most wins in racing. And I looked around, and, you know, there weren't kids or men or hobbies. There was nothing. It was working at 24-7, and I've never, that was more exhausting than trying to triple homicide. And I realized that was over. That was something that I realized I was using horses for personal gain. Uh, the accomplishment had taken away from me any quality of any life, any life. I mean, and I've done that my whole life. May it have been trial work or the horses, I greatly sacrificed having a personal life. And uh, do I regret that? I don't know yet. <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> I, I think people that immerse themselves in something and get thoroughly involved, especially if they if there's passion there, sometimes they lose sight of what's around them while, while they're I, going through it. And I did. I did. Go ahead. And I'm not saying I have any regrets because, you know, what's important to me is, is I mean, my priorities changed abruptly after that. I'll, I'll tell you that much. My priorities changed. I have just found that all of us, you know, we have to believe in faith and God and everything else that we are taught to believe in. And all of us just, you know, there's a line there that we follow and some of us can't control it, which means, you know, what is it that's important? And most little girls grow up wanting to get married and have a husband and kids and 2.3 dogs and a picket fence. And that just didn't happen um, because I truly uh, was so obsessed with my own uh, you know, dual goals. So, you know, when I go around the country lecturing or talking to parents, I, I always say, don't, don't do, don't be me. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. It's probably not very healthy. And I did get very sick and had multiple sclerosis and got very, very sick about that time. And, um, that's stress, you know, everything health wise is stress and I'm fine now, but I, think I have things a little more in perspective of what priorities should be. You know, I think sometimes when you go through that, where you've gone through a period of intensity and then it's not there, there's that post-traumatic stress syndrome that it, it doesn't have to be on the battlefield. It can be in the living room. It can be in a multitude of uh, variables and factors that, you know, we all must stop and look around. And as we get older, less our priorities are supposed to change. Um, we're all in trouble, you know, yourself included. You have to, a balanced life is not a bad thing. I'm having trouble and struggle with having a balanced life even to this moment, but I'm trying to get better. (laughs) (laughs) But after you went through that, you started looking at some very important issues, not not only in the horse world, but in, in your life and things things in general. So tell us, tell us about the transition, if you don't mind. I, it happened when I, after I won the national title and a lot of things that we all do is because we don't have a working knowledge of the realities of life. So I realized for the first time, um, 
the overabundance of horses and what was happening to these horses. And that culminated at a time in my law office when I got a call from a rescue group that had rescued a horse of mine from a kill buyer. And all those words were foreign to me. I wasn't aware, even growing up with hunters and jumpers, I did not have an awareness of a world out there that, that, that existed, but I didn't know about it. So then I became possessed with learning and, and looking into a world that I didn't know would exist. I always make the analogy to a special not long ago when they were talking about child uh, sex slaves and selling children for sex, and that was something that none of us thought about until people started talking about it. So I really, really got into um, an obsession uh, with the fact that we slaughtered horses, and that back then that included actually what was real, you know, wasn't wasn't fake. I watched uh, videos. I saw what went on in Mexico and Canada. I began a whole new uh, input of friends and underground and people that had been working with this, and that opened a world um, kind of similar to what I dealt with in Iowa when I first discovered puppy pulp. And um, it's a fight that to the second I'm fighting, I, I'm not making, I, I can bring awareness to the issue. And I can say this to you, Les, I just listened to the, you know, Jockey Club Roundtable. I listen, I read, I try and soak in as much. And I cannot say that the thoroughbred industry has not made great strides in rescues as far as, uh, you know, new vocations, old friends and great places and lots of money. And we've made great strides, but we have not made great strides in stopping the slaughter of these thoroughbreds. And by the way, I don't discriminate. Quarter horses, ponies, mules, I, I don't care. I don't care if they're famous or not famous, but every week we're still slaughtering horses for food, and, and I can't get past that. And I'm, I'm just absolutely obsessed with that area, and the industry has not um, really made any great help in that area. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of horses have been adopted and, 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 you know, I'm involved in aftercare, you're involved in aftercare, but there's still an underbelly. And I, I use that, that term cautiously, but there's an underbelly of horses going, coming off a lot of racetracks, whether they're C-level, D-level racetracks that are still winding up in the kill pens of places like New Holland. It's, it's, it's staggering. Uh, it's still existing. It's uh, an underbelly would be an understatement. Lust. It's uh, got a lot of criminality to it, a lot of fraud to it. Um, and I am not. Um, I've, I've, as you know, I took on the state of Louisiana and southern Louisiana, and I went through six months of of calling, dealing. Uh, sending people in undercover, getting threatened myself. I, I, it's it's not slowed down, and it's like an aberration. But yes, it's California, it's Illinois, it's Iowa, it's New Holland, it's Pennsylvania, it's Canada. It's we don't talk about it less. And if I 
uh, go to these seminars and, and talk to people that are in the industry of, of high proportion, I, they do look at the ground. They don't look at me because nobody wants to talk about it and no one wants to hear about it. And I even researched, interestingly, I tried to research where did we become a country that we euthanize dogs and cats because of an overpopulation. You know, we have a humane system that we deal with domesticated dogs and cats where, uh, you know, we have a humane euthanization. Why did, how did that start? Why can't we do that with horses? Why can't we have humane euthanization? And I get met with the quarter horse group and the Association of Veterinary Practitioners and any of those people that say slaughter is a necessity has not watched the video of the rides to Mexico and how we kill and slaughter these horses. They've not watched it, and they need to. The the idea of euthanasia by choice is somewhat novel to a lot of people. But having seen... And, and you, you as well, having been in these situations where these horses are in such deplorable shape, in so much discomfort and pain, <clears throat> I, I'm going to agree with you. I think that that's something that that needs to happen under the proper supervision. Absolutely, I'm. I I don't think uh, us talking about euthanization is quite as um, frightening as it used to be because. I would, uh, 10 out of 10 times, euthanize any horse in lieu of having it be slaughtered for food in Mexico, no matter what the circumstances. And we're doing that more. And, um, you know, it's a dysfunction. And, you know, how we treat our animals, you know, defines the society we are. And I feel very strongly about that. We're supposed to be a civilized society. So we don't slaughter horses and eat them. And it's that simple. And I don't know, you know, how much more I can fight it. I fight it every day. And I do not see politicians. I do, that's not true. There are some politicians supporting the SAFE Act in Congress. And, um, you know, I, I it's very difficult for me to talk about because I'm just a small girl from Des Moines, Iowa, that is not a politician. <laughs> And so I can't fight the politics, especially of our new regime. Oh, my Lord, our new regime. Did I just call it that? I did, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. And, and you notice I didn't argue with you. So No, I, I, I don't want to get into that. But I'm, but, I'm saying I, I, I really, uh, lately, of interest to you, less of interest, I have a group of people out there that call me a hypocrite, that call me insincere. They say you talk about it, but you don't do anything about it because all these horses that you used to own, you know, you're in the claim horse business at one time, You, it's your job to save them all. And all the really bad owners out there, and there are bad owners of racehorses like everything else, they're not responsible. They consider me responsible. I got a nasty text last night, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And um, it's it's hurtful, but I do put my money where my mouth is because I just took three or four horses and they've all had surgery and they're all going to have a great life. They're my horses. I own them. I'm responsible for them. 
I could have done something different, but I chose to fix them so they can have an afterlife. And that's all I can afford. Um, but they don't think there should be horse racing, and that's ludicrous because they'll be horse racing forever. Yeah, and, you know, and that that's, you know, pe- people who are living in rainbow world, I call it. And th- in my opinion, you know, what you do, and I, I've seen your Facebook page, you know, for several years now. You know, you're, you're chasing all over the place to find these horses that you, you may have once owned or whatever. Uh, but you've sold the product, and now the next person should have responsibility. And Somebody other than me should have responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, no, seriously. The, the last owner should have responsibility. I, I've, I've believed that since 1984 when I first took out my trainer's license. If, if you're the... If you're the last person standing with that horse, that's your responsibility. You don't throw them away. Uh, and well, uh, I, I feel I, very strongly I, about that. I do, too. And I only bring that up because not that it gets to me, but education. And, um, you know, as we all know now from social media, you know, it's it's a free world. It's free speech. You can say what you want. But... My concern is not what people say, it's what people do. <laughs> I I don't need to talk about what I've done the past two months because I do it uh, for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. I don't need to put it on social media. I don't need to do anything. I need to take care of the animals I'm responsible for. I need to take the really you know, fabulous horses I've owned that have been staked horses, and I need to have them go to the best home. I think there's a misconception, less that if you're in the thoroughbred racehorse business, you must have been born with a gold spoon in your mouth and have unlimited funds. I can assure you that would not be true with me. But you know what? Th- that's interesting that you say that because I do a lot of equine appraisals, and so I see all different breeds and all different environments and everything else. Okay, the problem is not unique to our industry. Actually, our industry is the only industry that's facing the problem. Uh, if you go to the show world, uh, th- they don't even talk about it. If you go to the casual horse owner, they don't talk about it. And, and, and so the thoroughbred industry, because we're on TV more and we're more public. I, I think we get the, the bullseye on our back. Well, I but we really don't have the bullseye in our back because we are driven solely by what we read and we're media-driven. We've been media-driven to bring light to attention to problems in the world, right? Be cocaine and crack or abuse women or, you know, other issues in society. You know, we start talking about it. I, I watched not to bore you, but it was fascinating. I watched Any Given Sunday, Saturday night, back in the 90s, when El Pacino was talking about what we do to football players, you know, to succeed. And I thought, oh, my God, we just started talking about that in 2016. (laughs) And here he is doing a movie in 1990. So we are driven by the media. And I don't feel in reading everything that's coming out of the industry with the big races, the big money being spent at the sales, I did not see anything discussed at the round table at the jockey club about slaughtering horses because we don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. And the industry doesn't talk about it. 
and it's just an acceptance. And I don't get that because if you're in racing and you love the animals, without the animals, you have no racing. And these animals we're watching run today that are achieving great success, you know, could be on a dinner table two years from now. Well, even the one... Even the ones that are more likely, the ones that aren't achieving great success, and th- this sounds corny, they are of no lesser value than the horse that wins the stake. I couldn't agree more. I don't yeah. discriminate. <laughs> I don't. Okay. Animals so, are no more responsible where they are born and where they go than you and I. So yeah, now we've talked about some heavy heavy duty stuff. Let's let's switch to. Your current racing stable, because I know you're doing well and you've got a big mare in the barn. Let's talk about that. I have watched for years, and this will be really interesting to anybody um, in horse racing right now. I've started watching what I call the Great Divide about three years ago. Last, I, I saw it happening, and it mirrors and parallels uh, society and what does all that mean? I saw the middle class dropping out of racing and uh, humanity as we know it today. So we have in horse racing right now, we have the bottom, and I'm not knocking the bottom, but the Racinos, Prairie Meadows, Charlestown, Mountaineer, multitude of tracks where you will see a steady stream of cheaper claiming condition races, 4,000, uh, 3,000, 5,000, and a great need to fill those races. And then you go to a, the other end now, which is million-dollar yearlings, and, you know, I see it going back to the sport of kings, meaning, you know, you've got no more middle class, for instance, the day of being able to buy a nice horse for 20000 or 25 and competing on an upper level. So... That, with the lessening of the pole count, the abuse of running horses over and over and not giving them breaks, you have no more. You have the bottom and you have the top. So um, being a woman that would prefer to put any monies I am lucky enough to have into tall, solid buildings and horses, I'm kind of backed down and backed away. I have been really lucky. Uh, Big World was a... You know, those come along. I've been lucky enough with another mare so many ways, Big World. Um, Big World was at Windstar. She was at the spa, and she's just come back into Churchill. She is uh, committed to be confined at Classic Tipton, uh, their star of sales in November. And, you know, that makes me very sad, but it makes me, um, you know, I love her. She's been just the most amazing horse I've probably ever owned, and I mean that from a personality point of view. She's, you know, very special to me, so I'm sure I will um, take the abuse of why would I sell her, and I will sell her because I'm a single woman, and I didn't, I'm not married. I um, don't have the resources to not uh, take the money from that sale. Uh, to do the good that I need to do and take care of those that I love. So Big World just came back to Churchill. She's probably going to at Churchill in the Chaluki, a grade two. She's scheduled to be sold November 7th at Tessa Clifton. 
Uh, the rest of my horses, a lot of young horses right now. I don't do much planing anymore. I have wonderful two-year-olds. I use Patty Miller of EQB Equine, who talked Mr. Zayat out of selling American Pharaoh. She um, is my agent. I'm looking at buying young horses. I have quite a bit of them now, so I don't have quite as many horses at the racetrack anymore. We'll go to Churchill and then go on to Louisiana, the fairground. And I used to have 10 trainers and 70 horses, and now I have maybe 22 and two trainers. And life's a little simpler this way, isn't it? I have more time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> to be doing this interview, I, no, no, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I am kind of slowing down to smell the roses a little bit more. And people go, well, what does that mean? And it means... I can take longer walks with my dog. I can read books, and sometimes I can watch TV. Now, how, how many young horses do you have now? I have probably 10 less. I have uh, probably 10 two-year-olds. Some of them have already run. Some of them are just coming to the track. But I kind of lost my stomach a little bit for the climbing game due to um, the difficulty of keeping track of horses due to the conditions that a lot of people do to too much vet work, uh, too much stuff. And I'm just being selective about trying to buy yearlings and two-year-olds. I'm trying to stick to the regional program, um, Ohio, Indiana, Louisiana. I'm not in Iowa anymore, but I'm, it's more relaxed. I'm not shocking the world, but it's um, I'm trying to build up my stable again, but do it smartly, not by um, exercising tremendous resources. Well, we wish you the best of luck with that and with everything that you do. And as a member of the horse racing community, I, I appreciate what you do. Oh, and thank you. you know, thank you. Hope that you keep doing it for decades. Even, even though you, know, you probably I wouldn't want so to. Now, now, when am I ever going to meet you? You know, I come to Florida, and I just noticed you're in my part of the woods. Uh, you just let me know there's a place at the dinner table for you. We Actually, we just bought a farm out here, and uh, we, when you're down, uh, we'd love to out have here, you uh, join us. Out, out here means? Uh, in a little town called Bloxahatchee, which if you know Wellington... Uh, it's the town immediately north of Wellington. So you are 20 minutes from my mom's place um, in Dallas Land. 12 and a half minutes <laughs> from the 33480. Okay. Okay. okay uh, matter of fact, I used to work on the island so and live there. Well, so I will be uh, there on and off all winter. And I will, if you would text me the right number, I would look forward to meeting you. I would love to meet you, and th again, thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for joining us on the show. And this is Les Salzman for the Equisport Radio Network. Join us next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.